Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Aaron McDaniel, and I'm here with my co-host, Klaus Vieter. Thanks, Aaron, and welcome to our listeners. In today's episode, we're excited to be speaking with Israel Bimbe, who leads Africa go-to-market for Zipline. Zipline is a company focused on building the world's fastest and most reliable delivery drone and logistics network, ensuring that every person on the planet can have instant access to vital medical supplies. In our conversation, we discuss how emerging markets are leapfrogging mature markets in a number of key areas, the way to create a company culture that connects headquarters to local teams, and how Zipline is building strong teams in markets that they're expanding to. Israel, thank you so much for being with us today. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Zipline is essentially a San Francisco-based company that designs and manufactures drones, but also provides services that use the drones to deliver medical products and other types of goods. We're primarily operating in, in Africa, in Rwanda since 2016, in Ghana since 2019, and very soon launching in, in Nigeria and other places in the coming year. We're also operational in the U.S., uh, where we're partnering with the likes of Walmart, and health systems like Cardinal Health, Intermountain Health, and Novant Health to deliver medical products and other healthcare consumer goods to the populations in the U.S. And we recently launched a partnership in Japan with Toyota to kind of take this technology and do the very same in places like Japan. So that's pretty much Zipline in a nutshell. Our drones are designed as small airplanes, if you want, and not like multi-rotor drones. And pretty much what we've built is really not an off-the-shelf drone that's used once in a while, but it's really a system that operates uh, at a high-scale logistics system, I would say. We use drones that are catapulted into the airspace from a launcher and that land back to our hub using some sort of a fishing pole type of recovery system. A dozen of drones per hub, we can serve hundreds of health facilities and deliver hundreds of thousands of kilograms of goods every day in in about 20,000 square kilometer kind of space. That's pretty much what what Zipline is all about in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. Let's start with a little bit about your background. So so you had studied at University of Rwanda, studied pharmacy. So you kind of had this background going into pharmaceutical industry and very quickly clashed with drones and and you kind of continued working on both. This this might be the rare case where uh, <laughs> you, your your education sort of fit dovetailed with technology trends and come together. But tell us a little bit more about about uh, your background and your career journey. Yeah, I, I kind of have a background in pharmacy, as you said, and and policy. I was really focused into healthcare policy early on in my career and and while at school. I was also president of one of the oldest student organization, which is the International Pharmacy Students, headquartered in The Hague in the Netherlands, and kind of had the stop over in Washington, D.C. and other places through fellowships and and small experiences, mostly focused in healthcare policy, focused on medical access and and the policies around how do we ensure access and repeatable access of medicines. And funny enough, at that time, we were talking about things like, you know, what we used to call disease X, which was a pandemic to come sometime in the future, and how hard it was going to be to really ensure that there is access for medical products, for vaccines and other type of things. And I was really passionate about that side. And I said, discovering the many different ways that different organizations are trying to solve this. I was mostly hooked about the 
technology aspect into this, whether that's online pharmacies, whether that's the different ways that people are trying to solve for problems using technology in the pharmaceutical space, not only the pharma, the industrial space, but also the pharmaceutical space that directly face consumers and patients. So that's how the interest in drones really came. And, and that's where I kind of started learning more about this space. My first role was as a, as a consultant and advisor for global health organization, for donor organization like the USAID and the Gates Foundation and many other players in the space who were trying or starting to establish small drone operations across Africa, in Vanuatu and other places in the world where they were thinking they have a problem, drones are solving them. Most of them were buying drones off the shelf, trying to figure out how to do training for their flight operators, how to license their drones in, in constrained regulatory environments and how to finance those type of operation to deliver just a couple of doses of vaccines across a mountain, across a river, or to, to kind of get HIV samples back from those alpha cities when they conduct campaigns. That's kind of what I did uh, in the first three years of my career. And then Zipline launched in Rwanda in 2016, where I was part of the launch process in Rwanda, given that I'm based here, but I didn't really pick interest into Zipline yet because I felt like their model was quite different and we wanted to, to see where it goes as an industry. But later on, after one year, I, I ended up joining Zipline, primarily kind of driving their implementation at scale here in the country. They had operated that first year at, in, a, in a kind of sort of a pilot. And then I really had to make sure that we, we operate at scale, move from you know a dozen of health facilities to about you know, 300 or so operate more from operating from one hub to two hubs and, and really take it to the next level. So that, that's a bit about me and how I ended up at Zipline and what my, my career has been about so far. It's really fascinating. So I'd be curious to understand how your experience from pharmaceutical to policy development, et cetera, sort of helped you implement a scalable model in Africa. What are some of the past experiences that you're now using in your role at Zipline? One thing that's uh, usually misunderstood about the pharmaceutical training and the pharmaceutical space in general, it's that it's one of the most versatile medical practice, right? We learn about business, we learn about supply chain, we learn about everything industrial, we learn about the chemistry of drugs. So it, it really has significant range. And a country like Rwanda, especially as many other developing countries have, we don't have the luxury of having specialization across multiple universities. So you get everything into one class, into one program. And, and, and as the country develops, they hope that you will fit in whatever comes next. Many other countries will have like focus and, and some schools focused on the industry, others on the other. And so I really benefited a lot from that training and that kind of capability. But then again, as I worked in policy and focused a lot on health policy, I kind of got to understood the systemic challenges that exist in healthcare systems and healthcare supply chain systems and the different building blocks and where they are rotten and where they are not working and where things are not really answering to the challenges that exist for populations across the African continent and the rest of the what. And I think I carried that passion and that knowledge into now trying to really scale this, this technology and this business here in Rwanda by really driving some, some sort of change management with our stakeholders and our partners. For a technology like ours to be able to launch in a country like Rwanda required a willing partner in the government and government institutions and other stakeholders that we had to have. And so we really used that to hook ourselves on really trying to get them to get to that transformative nature 
of the service that we have and wholly integrate it and integrate it very deeply in every aspect of the healthcare system, which is something that's not easily done in many places. You know, some healthcare systems are already rigid and solidly built in a way that it's so hard to disrupt. But we we, we were fortunate enough to be in a space and a place where that was something that we can dream of and actually drive and, and get to, to do it in some ways. That's so interesting. I, I feel like I've learned something new today. The way you explain the holistic education, is that something that is indicative of just that university you went to in Rwanda or or throughout Africa or, or is is it you know throughout developing markets? Just curious on, on that side of things. I think it's something you'll see in, in uh, developing markets, whether that's in medical school, whether that's in finances, pretty much everywhere. The scarcity of this type of trainings kind of push us in trying to pack as much as possible into the few programs that exist. And that's with hope that as our economies develop, we are able to really fit in anything that's ready for us. And, and that's what you see many people jump from place to place as, as their economies kind of grow in the last 10 or 20 years. You, you'll probably have noticed that for many of the, the professionals on the continent. I think this is an interesting topic to talk a little bit more about in, in the context of, of Zipline. So I, I think a lot of companies will think, okay, I, I need to go to a developed market, one of the biggest markets to validate my business. Depending on the industry, that might be the right path, but there are a lot of industries where that's not the right path. And I think in particular, in the context of countries that maybe don't have as entrenched of an infrastructure, going to a developed market can be pretty exciting. So I I worked at AT&T for a long time. And so, you know, we, we had this idea of all these copper wires under the ground that, that existed all throughout America and in, in other uh, more, more mature economies. But you have the chance in some developing markets to leapfrog, right? You don't have to go right. build all of those wires. You can go right to wireless. You know, in the same way, if you look at maybe some of the developed law and policy around uh, what can fly in the air and aviation rules uh, that maybe not as developed in certain developing markets compared to mature markets, making it easier to get in, get traction, build the business. So curious to understand a little bit more about how developing markets play in with Zipline, as well as some of those dynamics between developing and uh, mature markets. I think that's that's definitely the spirit that we've we've seen everywhere we go, right? There is absolutely no kind of excuse to not try this out and to make sure that it solves some of the problems that they have. And I think it's also the advantage of building technology in this space and era instead of, you know, really focusing on trying to disrupt entrenched systems that already exist, that are already structured, where incentives are built to not be broken. You kind of look at this other part of the world and you realize, okay, there is a ton of potential and a lot of things that haven't been done and so many problems that are unsolved. And I think that's really what the advantage is for this type of market where we're operating in. And that gives us a unique opportunity to really go at it. And one thing we've noticed is that we also have willing partners. For example, Zipline operates in two highly regulated industries, uh, healthcare and aviation. And really to bring them together to agree on what it is that's going to happen, it can be quite tough. I remember I was leading our aviation regulatory work here in Rwanda, which is funny for a pharmacist, but early on in Zipline, and time and, and people couldn't believe that we are asking for a new plane to be approved or that we are asking for some things that they've never been done before in the past. They've never looked at how to design and implement routes for drone delivery system or how to integrate and coordinate drone flights with uh, with helicopter or traditional aviation. I remember one of the things we did is we used traditional radio like any other helicopter pilots to call into air traffic control and fly. But then we started making 50, 60, 100 flights a day 
and it became unsustainable. And we were clogging the line all the time and other pilots couldn't speak to air traffic control. And so we were like, you know, guys, we talked to you once about a way of doing things on an iPad using some sort of a digital interface. And that had never existed in aviation. What they had thought was going to be a simpler method is a probably 60-year-old way of using messaging when airplanes are flying above oceans and can connect to any to any radio frequency. We leapfrogged that, that we never implemented that messaging system. We just went straight to a much more intuitive digital kind of application that they can use to integrate us with other uh, airplanes. So I think you have a chance to do those kind of things in this particular market because there is some sort of an empty field and, then, and a ton of opportunities that are left to be explored. And you encounter partners and stakeholders who are very much willing to kind of embrace that change, embrace what's new and how to go about it. And when, when I talk to people, I'm like, do you believe that I'm sitting in a country where at 6 p.m. now and we've done 200 flights of drones and there is absolutely no problem. Traffic is normal. People are doing their normal business plus some random 200 flights of drones that happened that day. And that that's not something someone in France can ever think of or in another place. And these are highly autonomous, beyond visual line of sight, drones that are flying, making deliveries of life-saving products and goods. And, and now imagine what that future could be like in, in five to 10 years if we really continue to innovate with our Silicon Valley spirits that we bring to, to these countries. So we'll be doing tremendous work, not only in, in that space, but maybe much more. And this might be a, a bit of a sensitive question, right? So you talk about a lot about the receptiveness is high in terms of you know, bringing your technology market in certain African countries. How do you see that then in more in mature markets where things are more established and governments maybe also even be more established and more rigid when it comes to policy development, et cetera? How do you change that dynamic there, comparing that to your successful go-to-market strategy in Africa? Probably not the right way to go about it, but it's really right. guilt-tripping them and being left behind by what they call a, a nimachua or a developing country. It's like showing to, to regulators in places like the US and Europe what their counterparts in African countries are able to do, are able to learn, and how far and fast they could go. And this really, even to, to beyond regulatory aspects, it's really to speak to people on how much opportunity is left untapped by not being able to explore this, whether in how consumers get a different type of experience, whether in what kind of businesses can be built, and what type of skills their citizens and employees of these companies could acquire if this was being deployed and developed in those particular markets. So it's, it's really pushing them into a healthy competition with one another in some way. And is then the value proposition a lot different compared to Africa? What's sort of the change in, in, in communication to create that persuasion in the US versus obviously in, in Wanda and, and, and other markets you commercialized in? I think you adapt it to the particular kind of messaging needs and, and realities of what people want, right? Even, even in, in places like Africa, one example is the communities differ from one another, right? What the community in Rwanda and the community in Ghana is worried about how they would question this type of technology is quite different. And we try and localize it. You know, one way is hiring local teams, doing very big campaigns in the community to try and drive buy-in from the ground up. I think we have to do the same as well in those countries and really try to adapt with the needs that are there 
we adapt our value proposition to those kind of needs. You know, what, what is called equitable access here is probably a much more controlled or a much more efficient consumer experience in the US. Generally, the value is the same as we provide it, which is on-demand instant logistics. But the way you kind of position it and present it will vary from market to market, and you really have to localize it in that space. The same with areas of safety and regulatory aspects. You kind of have to make sure that you build trust to the bar that is set by the different regulators. And that's something that we've always done. We've built this technology not to be accepted by less stringent regulatory authorities, but by more stringent regulatory authorities. And often than not, we use the data that we use to fly in on the African continent, kind of show the FAA. This is how much we know about flying. This is how much we can do. And, and this is how we propose to go about it. And, and when they raise unique aspects, like we do have more personal pilots flying you know, on their own without any regulatory supervision, we kind of show them what we've built into our technology to be able to respond to that, given that we have always been motivated by the fact that this technology is built for the developed world, is built for the developing world. It's really built to solve a wide range of uh, challenges and problems that consumers face in any part of the world. And uh, and, and that kind of gives us a, an advantage as to, to how fast and far we can go, which is why when the pandemic started, when we launched our distribution, our hub in, in North Carolina, the FAA was willing to let us operate and they've, they've kind of been consistent in that manner uh, since May 2020 in letting us kind of uh, actually operationalize some of the partnerships that we're seeing and the interest that we're generating both from partners, but also from consumers who would benefit from a service like this. I, I want to focus a little in on, on a couple of comments that you had made in, in your last answer, because I, I think it's really important. And, and I think a lot of people might understand it or think they understand it, but I want everyone to think twice about this. I think that the countries in Africa, countries in Europe kind of have this similar stereotype that happens. They're like, oh, we got to expand in Europe. Well, that's like 28 countries or something like that, right? And, and you go, oh, oh, Africa, Africa, Africa. That's 54 countries. And each one is very different. And you were talking a little bit about, you know, differences for local needs and local policies and local problems in Rwanda, in Ghana, in Nigeria for Zipline. But talk a little bit more about this, just so people understand the diversity that, that this is not, the, the continent of Africa is not meant to be lumped in together. And even the label of developing countries, that doesn't even fully fit in the same way for every country in Africa, right? Because there, there's different infrastructure, there's different policy that's been set up. I, I want to give you a soapbox to talk a little bit about that, because I think it's really important for everyone to understand. Oh, yeah, that's definitely something to really understand. I think to put that into perspective, like we have 54 countries and in Africa, we can feed the entire Europe, America, Canada, and all that. That's how big it is. And I don't want to speak about Southeast Asia and Latin America as well. So I think it's really important to really understand what is the uniqueness about each country, about the fragmentation that exists in these spaces in the world. And the fragmentation is extremely deep. That could be on language barriers, like in Africa, we have Francophone, Anglophone, and Lusophone. That could be by colonial past, like we, we have like Latin, uh, Southern Africa, which had uh, a different kind of experience with South Africa and apartheid and, and kind of uh, Zimbabwe and Botswana and other places like that. We, we do have like Ethiopia that never got colonized and other spaces. So it's really important to kind of understand how have each of those countries been shaped in different ways and what has defined what they are and are doing currently today. And there is 
never a blanket way of going about doing business, building partnerships, getting regulatory approvals in, in those countries. It, it has to be localized. It's very individualized for each country. But I do believe that there is a thinking that has to come to it that allows you to also be successful in each of the markets that you try to go into. But it's really never a one-size-fits-all, a playbook type of way of going about it. It's kind of like for people to really appreciate that complexity. And especially, I always think like when people think about the market and try to put a number on the youth of Africa and how it's a tremendous global market kind of laying low and, and waiting to explode. It's, it's really important to actually realize that, that there is no harmonization whatsoever across the continent. And you really have to understand that it's extremely unique from country to country. And if you even go outside of Africa, right, it's like Bangladesh is very different from neighboring Indonesia or something like that in terms of how they think, how they go about things, what experiences they've gone through and doing business in either will be extremely different and has to be uniquely localized for that kind of country. So it's, it's really important for people to keep that in the back of their mind, just as they do so when they think of doing business between Canada, the US and Mexico. As you were talking about the scale, you were talking about 1.2 billion people across the 54 Correct. countries. And it's like somewhere between 50 to 60% are under 20 years old, right? So when you when you look Correct. at the, the future economic growth engines and, and consumer potential, it's huge. It's tremendous. Yeah. So, uh, so maybe talk about some of those differences culturally when you've done business in Rwanda and what was the other places you had been in Nigeria, you're going to Nigeria and Ghana. Can you talk a bit of, a bit about some of those cultural differences uh, you've experienced when going in and do business and try to deal with you know, partnerships and policy development, et cetera? Because you know, we've heard a lot of interesting stories uh, throughout the course of the period where we've, we've been writing the book about very unique cultural moments that sort of have created a ha moment for international business leaders when they tried to be successful in other markets. I think it would probably be hard for me to try and pinpoint to right. exactly what's really unique about certain places. But I'll give you a difference, an example in differences between Rwanda and, and Ghana, for example. So Rwanda just came out of a genocide that was very devastating 27 years ago. And that has really shaped a, a, a society or a community that is somehow relentless in their needs to prove to the world something. But it's also a very reserved society. Like Rwandan will never really tell you what's on their mind and whether it's a yes or it's a no and whether they accept or they reject. So it's it's really something you come to as a conclusion in a way or another. And then there is also like that that consensus-based kind of uh, decision-making where it's, it's, it's all together we are deciding this together. It's, it's like, you know, that that's also something really important to kind of realize on, on doing business. And then when you turn to Ghana, it's completely different. People are more loud, people are more open, people are more kind of straight in your face. What exactly is it that they think about you in some ways? But then you also have to think about the underlying kind of powers that are in how people engage with each other, whether that's cultural backgrounds, uh, like the, the chieftains that still exist or kingdoms that still exist in Ghana and, and where those kind of local chiefs and kings are still revered in many ways, or the sultans in places like northern Nigeria and other places, religiously does in so many ways. And so you have to also understand like those things can really make their way into doing business and how you balance all of that. For example, if you're acquiring land, it's it's really not about just acquiring land, but it's also seeking blessing from a local chief. And if you meet that person in a suit somewhere in an office in downtown, you'll probably notice that there is all of that behind them. But you have to be aware that there is kind of those things that can come. And if you go to a Francophone country, it kind of a lot 
lot of formalities, right? In, in how you address people and how you dress up for things and how you go for, how you do business, how you celebrate kind of winning deals or something like that. It's, it's also extremely unique and the way that it's formal can, can be quite annoying for someone who comes from, from a Silicon Valley company in their jeans, shirt and fleece or something like that. It's, it's really something that you have to keep on top of mind because that's how stature, that's how your personality is conveyed. It's, it's really how you look that conveys who you are compared to maybe the Anglophone world and, and the different way of going about it. So it's kind of some of those subtle things that I could talk about, but then you could also speak about the, the real ways of doing business, like the, the how to build trust with people who have known you for at least 18 months or something like that, or the way that you speak and the way that you present yourself or the way that you show respect is something that they do. Or in some parts of the continent, it's really important that someone else speaks highly of you and, and you really just don't do warm outreaches or outbounds in some ways. And then so it's kind of those things that somehow can permeated or translated into management practices in the West, but really are a bit more subtle, subtle and culturally ingrained into people in different parts of the world. I'm happy to go into the different examples and so on, but it, it can be a, a, some sort of a hole that we would go into. I, I think that's great. So uh, Klaus and I, we, we do a lot of business in Japan and we, we often think of the Japanese business culture as singular, one of itself <laughs> and very unique. But I, I never would have imagined some of these parallels like between Rwanda, like you were talking about, like maybe not being as clear about opinions, group decision-making. It's interesting to see how, how that has helped. And I think to a certain extent, maybe as you are developing these partnerships with Toyota you were talking about in Japan and other things. There's some lessons you can pull. That, that's really cool. Exactly. Um, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the story with you particularly and Zipline. So how did you find Zipline or how did Zipline find you? I mean, you know, when you're looking to build a strong team in new markets, you know, there's there, there are different ways to go about doing that. What is Zipline's strategy, and and how did how did you join? So I think when Zipline really launched in Rwanda in 2016, they kind of started looking all over the place to try and find who are the young leaders who have kind of a different potential and talents to be able to do that. And at that time, I was uh, just freshly elected president of the International Pharmacy Student Federation. I was the first African to be elected, kind of the pride of the country and the community in so many ways. I was also quite vocal and present in the local community through communities like the World Economic Forum, Global Shapers Community, organized events, building platforms for exchange on policy, business, and other aspects. I was present. I was active and present in the community and society. And I think that that kind of resonated with what Zipan was looking for in one of their leaders on the local in, in the local entity and, and what it is that they were looking for. At first, it didn't work out because I had requested to be able to travel as part of my presidency. And they were wanted someone who's fixed and who wanted to stay. And then that's how I ended up taking the other consulting gig that I did for, for, for a year or so. Uh, and then Zipline reached back to me and they're like, you know, looks like you're back and fully based in Rwanda again. Do you do you consider joining? Which uh, which I did. I, I did, I believe, one day of interview and I had the offer the following day and I started three days later. It was a Tuesday, Wednesday, and by Monday, they were like, no, no, you have to come in. We, we want you because the person who was kind of doing somehow your work is an American and is struggling and, and we need to, to fight some fires already. I was in and, and kicking by five days later. So that's kind of how we kind of met and worked together as a client. Talking about an accelerated hiring schedule right there. Huh? <laughs> Three days, literally, and you're in the hot seat at the company very, very quickly. Huh? 
yeah. I guess they've been they've been really following you for a long time there, and this really really were looking to uh, to onboard you at the company. In terms of obviously your background, we've interviewed a lot of business executives from across the world. I believe like 250 at this point. There's one thing particular that we found to be interesting when speaking to them. Something that really is not what everybody think about. Talk about like formative experiences, past experiences that has shaped them to basically who they are today. For example, we spoke to Abe Smith from Zoom, who essentially were English teacher in a rural fishing village in Japan. Troy Malone, who now leads expansion, about, mm-hmm, he was on a mission in Korea in the early 90s and spent essentially two years there and learned Korean and really help create this very global mindset in him. And having said that, what is the formative experience in your life that has sort of shaped who you are? Because you're very global by nature in terms of how you think. You alluded to it a bit before. You wanted to have a role where you could travel. Very much resonates with me as well as somebody that came from Denmark to the US and also lived in Vietnam and Latin America and so forth. What was that particular moment that shaped you, that experience that shaped you to really think this way? I think if you ask any Randan, really going through the genocide 27 years ago was extremely challenging and shaping in some ways. So my entire family, pretty much the majority of my family had fled the country in the first persecution around the history of the genocide. I may not have to go into that in early 60s and and late 50s. My parents were born in exile. I was born in exile. After the genocide, all Rwandans reconverged back in the country and built. Rwanda is a very small and landlocked country. We are about 21,000 square kilometer in the heart of Africa. We have no natural resources. We kind of have nothing really kick off the development of any other nation that you can imagine. Pretty much all we had is ourselves. All that after being so broken, after being kind of really cut in half, if you want, and and put on our knees by the genocide against the Tutsi in 1994. And, And really what we wanted is that awakening. And the leadership of the country and the vision that the country had was to really stand out for ourselves. Like a few years ago, we realized that no one was ever going to stand Stand up for us, and no one was about going to fight for us. And so there is that spirit of resilience that is in within Rwandans that is what shape being a Rwandan that shape us in what it is that we endeavor to do in the world. Every time I travel, every time I exchange with people, every time I have this kind of conversation, I I really do end up realizing that I get so much of that from that spirit. Today, we are one of the kind of, I believe, number two or number three doing business country on the continent, one of the fastest growing uh, economies on the continent. We have some, I believe, one of the largest airlines on the continent and something like that. And thinking that we've been able to achieve that and, and actually being a place where a company like Zipline can come and start is quite tremendous. And I don't think there is any better experience to go through. I was pretty young when the genocide happened. I was really young. I probably didn't see it. But when you grow up with orphan cousins and peers, with widowed aunties and uncles and many family members that you never knew, it's like my family is literally 10 people or so, and everyone else is, is unknown. Their memory, and, and we commemorate them every April. It, it really kind of gives you a certain drive and a different way of thinking and going about the world. And that's something that I feel you, you'll see in many of us who are from Rwanda. And it, it really shapes my identity, my character, and, and how I go about things in the world. I, I think this is a good example of the way you describe Rwanda for how companies need to think about cultural criteria and not just economic 
criteria when choosing what markets to go to and how it, it seems the way you describe Rwanda, because of that history, there's more of an openness to new things. Uh, the Because of how fresh the rebuilding was, um, understanding that, that technology can play a more prominent role or, or being maybe more early adopters. Because when, when you described Rwanda in terms of natural resources and other things, it would probably put the country at a disadvantage compared to a lot of areas. But when you look at that mindset, that is a perfect mindset for introducing new technology and, and new ways to do things. Absolutely. Uh, I completely agree. One of my really good friends uh, is also from Rwanda. His, his name is Octave and he lives in Denmark now and he lost both of his parents when he was younger. And you can just see that resilience that strengthened him. I was really drawn to him because I would never say that my experiences is the same, but I lost my brother in 2009 under very tra- tragic circumstances as well. So you know, really, really just learning from him in terms of how he tackled the situation, how he basically built a new life in Denmark, how he built a family with people that may not necessarily always be blood related, but just because they shared that experience and now sort of building his his life and also even in, in a national career from Denmark, coming all the way from Wanda to there is is something that I've always really appreciated in, in him. And so I can completely sort of relate, not totally, but at least through his experience, what what obviously you've gone through and have great admiration and respect for you know, emerging economies that's gone through very, very tough experiences and then really uplifting themselves through basically building a community and helping each other. So thanks for really, thanks for sharing that, that, that experience. I appreciate it. Really appreciate that. I guess maybe, maybe just a quick follow-up question. So that resilience that you've built, you know, and through that, that experience, how does that translate in your role at Zipline uh, as a leader, someone that drives growth and expansion for Zipline? I think really translates into saying that we, we, we have no excuse but to excel and succeed. And remember, Zipline is also has many similarities with the history of Rwanda, if, if it's possible to compare. But you know, we are creating an industry and the market. Five, six years ago, no one knew that this was possible. The drones were associated with war, killing, blood, and all the worst thing you can ever imagine. And so drones for good, uh, for life-saving medication, and for providing a completely different experience uh, for consumers just weren't something that anyone could ever imagine. And so being in this driving seat where you actually constantly get that validated and the fact that you are creating this market, scaling it, growing it, finding customers, uh, creating value for different parts in in the industry and in the ecosystem is is really like driven by that resilience and that idea that you absolutely have to make it happen. And and having succeeded to do that in Rwanda with colleagues in some way and somehow, you just have the urge of like, how do we do that now at a significantly larger scale? And it's such a privilege to be in the in the position to do so. And that's, that's kind of what I channel and how I channel it. And, and you always have that belief that we, we can do it. We can really create something truly tremendous that's very transformative for systems, for ecosystem, for consumers, for patients. Anyone who's party to it will really be transformed in some way, somehow. And we are creating a future that no one ever imagined possible. Another thing that we'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on is how things have been, because you, you'd been there maybe not from the beginning, but very early on in the expansion in the African continent for Zipline. Talk a little bit about how it feels to be an ocean away from everybody else, maybe <laughs> maybe how it's changed over time. And in particular, one thing that, that's a big deal for Klaus and I is it's not just a 
oh, hey, yeah, you need to communicate well and, and time zones are different, but that companies need to set up structures and processes and things in place to really facilitate that strong communication and the ability to localize appropriately for a market. Talk a little bit more about what that's been like for Zipline and, and maybe some of the things that have been set up that have made you you guys as a company successful. Yeah, I think the first thing, for example, was to really realize that to be successful, you need to localize everything, whether it's operation, leadership, everything, and, and, and really trust that these people bring a unique perspective to the world and the company, right? It, remember, we are working with people who have lived and worked their entire life in an ecosystem like Silicon Valley. They have a different way of thinking, a different way of going about things. Probably most of them haven't ever met an African in their lives <laughs> and even step, you know, step in, in Africa. And, and at that time, when I joined Zipplan, Rwanda was our only market. So it, it was really our product market fit, our product market validation market. And, and that's where everything was at. And we really, really had to get it right. And, and you are entrusted to drive the company for that kind of make it or break it type of moment that the company is going through in its growth and its, its its journey. And of course, our second market, we also realized, okay, it has to be led by Ghanaians and, and the same. And, and really now that our team is big enough, we are the ones leading our expansion across the continent. And so it was really important for folks in the US to really understand that was important and necessary. But also I, I, I kind of appreciate our colleagues who kind of came to the certain level of like, okay, someone can be a general manager, a business leader without the Stanford MBA or the Harvard MBA, which is stereotype or, or kind of the normal of where they come from. You, you have a Rwanda are. MBA, right? You know, <laughs> you know the market. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but but it's a shock, right? It's a cultural shock. And people talk to you. And, and I remember meeting certain of my colleagues and you can see the aha and the how in their eyes. And they're like, where have I been in the world? If I've never met folks like this, where, what was I thinking if I thought my world is a bubble in in California and San Francisco that that doesn't expand beyond me. And so that, that's, I think it was really important that early on, like those kind of structures are clear and people understand that these people are mandated and they have the authority and the power to drive the company in this direction and whatever direction they drive us in, we trust them to drive us where we'll be successful. It was a quite exciting kind of partnership with engineers when it comes to regulatory and when it comes to to really modeling our products and drones in a way that work best for what's right here for, for the healthcare applications that we were into and partnering with different leaders in that sense. So I think there is that localization on one hand, but there is also kind of outward kind of way of people opening themselves up to uncertainty of what the world has to offer, fully trust us to go get it for them. That, that really has allowed us to pair the extreme talent and capabilities of the folks in San Francisco who kind of got this started and those of us who contributed to drive its growth and scale on the continent, which was really, really important to get right and, and kind of set those things. And of course, that kind of uh, results into the practices. We've been working from home and asynchronously for a long time than anyone else in the world discovered uh, a year or so ago and kind of allowing ourselves to really make sure that there is that trust building that happens. One thing we do regularly is kind of we have a Zipline Academy here in Rwanda, and which we consider as the maker of the company. So most of our colleagues in the US, when they join the company, they come and spend two weeks here, soak in that culture, get fully into it, and, and then they go back and they kind of can fully relate with what it is that we're doing and, and so on and so forth. So 
those kind of things were really important to get right in some ways. Also very interesting, the, la- the last point in terms of educating employees and colleagues from the US coming to Wanda. Most often you kind of see it the other way around, bringing people from exactly. Wanda over to Silicon Valley. Let's teach you how company operates, <laughs> our company culture, etc. I find that to yeah. be very, very fascinating. In terms of creating those aha moments as well in the very beginning for leadership to understand you need to localize, can you elaborate a bit more about that? And let me maybe context things a bit here as well. For example, we spoke to Airbnb when they were expanding into Korea. They brought, uh, they, they brought in the leadership including the founder and CEO of Airbnb to kind of look at basically how users were using the Airbnb app through a two-way mirror. So bringing the leadership all the way over to Korea uh, to get that experience, to understand how Airbnb is used uh, to kind of create that persuasion and say, hey, you need to change and adapt to this market instead of just like say, hey, we're going to use the Airbnb app as people use it in the US, but actually truly understanding how you know that you need to localize. What were some of the things that you did to convince leadership to understand, okay, you need to adapt your model and your technology and your go-to-market strategy, et cetera, to the Rwanda market? Two things primarily. What you just mentioned, like really exposing them to the market in a way or another. And that's done either through the Zipline Academy and the way that program is structured where onboarding program for new employees or even for existing leaders in the company, it's really to come, spend time with operators, go see our customers, whether it's at the hospital, whether it's you know in the country where we are operating. Some of them would go sit with our regulators, talk to them, have a workshop with them to really build that connection directly one-on-one. And we overemphasized that, especially early on. There was always people coming every month, every week, every time. That, that So that it was really important for us to do that and get it right. So you talked a bit about Zipline Academy, educating colleagues of yours around how business is done in Rwanda, how business works there, and, and so forth, right? Do you also educate beyond colleagues and more for the community to obviously tap into talent locally? Does it go beyond that? Maybe you can clarify that a bit. Because this is drone technology and you will not find aeronautic engineers or drone or flight engineers in those particular markets. So the academy is established as a way for us to really level up the, the skills and talents of people who come into the company to be able to operate our platform and our unique technology. And so that's why when, when we go in a new country, we just look for electrical engineer, computer science engineers, and just bring them on board, take through a certification process for two weeks or so, and then they are certified to be able to operate our platform. But I think that also the way to look at it is that our our hubs in, in, in Africa and different parts of the countries are also sent of excellence for really what innovation should be like. We've been in a place where the fact that we are there and are able to fly from there, it gives a different way of young people from kindergarten all the way to college students on thinking about the future and what it is that they are capable of doing and what they can dream of. And so the academy is also set up as a place where it really doesn't serve only the employees of Zipline, but it can be something that can either house interns or something where we can go and provide lectures in local technical schools, high schools, universities, and so on and so forth. And and we are really thinking of how to expand it in that manner where we we have a tremendous uh, kind of ripple effect into the ecosystem that we establish ourselves into. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then I think the second is what I said, you know, really localizing it in terms of hiring fully local people who will lead operations, who will lead management and business development, and, and also like community engagement. Because you want, when we are flying off of hubs, and, and these are strange objects that people 
can still trust. And, and the way that the news are covering them is quite dangerous. So the community has to really trust that whoever is flying that thing is one of us and is doing it for the benefit of us and is educating them in how it's working, what it's doing and what it does and how to react to it and what to, to how to interact with that type of technology. So it was really, really important for us to be able to do it in both ways where as much of the work as possible is done by locals. They are really model, modeling it and shaping it in a way that serves the local community without really applying, again, a blanket playbook in some ways, but also ensuring that there is that constant stream and exchange of information from here all the way back to the US. And we've done that in many different ways, right? We have, of course, the leadership that has to come here and other parts of the company that have to, to come here physically, but also we have so much power that lies into operators and other team members who are based here into the future, the shape and what the product does, even if it's tools like Jira or whatever tools that companies use to kind of establish this, you make sure that there is kind of that systemic approach to really ensure that the voice of the people uh, who are local is, is really heard in terms of who takes decision, who is the one who is the final kind of approver of certain aspects or features and so on and so forth. How do you do product review? And, and, and those kind of things were really set up in a way that there is a clear balance of power and there is a clear respect of the different teams in terms of how things are done and what it's done. So, so that, that's kind of one of the ways that we've seen that we're doing it. Turning out to work quite well. And now that we're even scaling further, you kind of realize that we are getting to have that cultural diversity even into how we think and go about things that was probably going to be monotonous if we were only in Rwanda or only in Ghana but you kind of realize okay there are differences in different parts and our product has to be built to really address a lot of that and, and our systems have to adapt to that in many ways so I think that's one of the ways that we, we've really gone about it but that academy experience meeting customers, meeting doctors at the local hospitals, and the fact that we have those leaders locally were truly, truly transformative in terms of how how we, we got to succeed and how fast we, we were able to do so. What you're talking about really fits well in, into a concept that, that Klaus and I have talked a lot about, about this, this concept of a pendulum that often exists and, and, and how companies need to be very mindful about what functions are localized versus centralized and, and yeah. how, you know, yes, it's true that things might change a little bit when you go from just being in Rwanda to bringing in Ghana and Nigeria and other countries. But, but the notion that you're mindful of understanding what needs to be in that local market to be successful versus what can be centralized at headquarters where you can get some scale or, or maybe need some of that continuity and, and universality as opposed to it being localized. I think one other thing I could probably add there is also the need for transparency. I think when you don't treat these as two different entities or three different entities it, it, and you increase transparency in what's being done, I think we've even seen that on even aspects that are completely unrelated to operations, to engineering, to the products, there are very good and fresh perspectives that come from different parts of the company that really shape the future of the company and its success in the future. And so that, that's one other thing I, I definitely should emphasize on. No us versus them. You know, that's really important. And, and I think I think actually what you just said at the end there is something we believe is a, a true hallmark of global class companies. And that's not that innovation is driven from headquarters down to every local market, but then when there's an innovation or an insight in one local market, that that's translated back to headquarters and can be used across the whole global footprint. That's what global Correct. class companies do really well. Definitely. And I think really even building the systems where that feedback is constantly coming back and, and recognized and 
and acted upon in a in a way that that it actually can happen. You can easily see where people are sharing thoughts and ideas, and they hit some sort of a wall because people are like, "Who are you to 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 innovate above my capacity and knowledge?" But then you realize, like, when you build the culture so that people really trust the people who are interrupting the product on a daily basis, who are speaking with the customers on a daily basis, they they tend to have the authority over the direction of the business, the product, and the company more broadly. So that that has been quite tremendous to observe. Uh, um, I don't want to assume that things are old hat because you have launched Zipline in a couple markets, but you're, you're going on your third market. I, I imagine by now you've sort of developed a little bit of a process. So I, we might use the word playbook to be able to be successful. Talk a little bit about what that playbook looks like. And, and actually, if there is a physical one, how that's being developed and adapted as time goes on and you enter more markets. I think it's, it's actually interesting that, that our experience is a bit different from how many other people would want to go up. About it. My, my thinking is we are still learning and we are still allowing ourselves to really be a bit scrappy in how we go about that. But of course, we do have some validated theories on what works and what doesn't work. We, we know, for example, who exactly should be our champion and what type of person we should aim to connect and contact with the first. Government cells, which is mostly what we do, tend to be to have very long cycles. So we know exactly what are the best way to shorten those in some ways. We, we've also cracked and figured out, for example, how to build this partnership very efficiently without really getting stuck into the procurement processes that certain countries establish that, that can be hard to establish public-private partnerships. Overall, I think the spirit has been more, let's remain crap. It's only a third market. There are 54 of them. We'd like to be in as many of them as possible. There is some sort of things where the markets that we are in tend to be quite similar, how they are open, and the fact that they are all English-speaking and so on and so forth. But as we go to French-speaking markets, markets, Lusophone-speaking markets, maybe in Southern Africa, will now kind of inform a holistic playbook of some sort that can probably accelerate as we go to those customers who are beyond the charts, if you want, and, and, and kind of require a bit more of a playbook type of approach to, to really close them. So yeah, I, I think it's one item at a time that we get to understand what works and what doesn't work, while also making sure that we are not in an analysis paralysis, but we're able to move really fast. <laughs> the analysis paralysis. We heard that a couple of times. Um, so, so it sounds like you guys certainly has been a bit more on the skunk work side of things in terms of expansion, right? So one of the things that Aaron and I, we also talk about is managing complexity because when you just go and do skunk works and try to find product market fit in all these different markets and all of a sudden you have three, five, seven desperate models, then that is very challenging to scale. So at some point you need to think about how you manage complexity and how you put up guardrails when you also grow and expand to a lot of different markets because all of a sudden you'll have like four, 54 different models and you don't want that either, right? So what are you guys doing to manage that complexity? Because it sounds like you guys are getting to the point where you need to consider these things at the very least. I think the first is the type of product that we have. The drone can fly in only one way, in only a certain matter, in only so far and carry a limited amount of, uh, of goods and products. But I think what goes on top of it, because remember we are not selling the drone, but really selling the service and the experience on top of it. That's where we have to put on guardrails and also understand what exactly we need to do. But it's also important to remember that we, we are still in a very nascent industry and it's, it's still prone to, to disruption. And so we don't really want to be so fixated in some ways. Um, but so, for example, our focus on healthcare was we really need to get this right and we really need to understand how best this works. 
and what's our clear value proposition here and how we can do that at scale. We have a good understanding of what that looks like for blood, for, for medical products and for vaccines. And now we can start questioning and ask ourselves like, what else could we be doing and how else can that look like? So I think we've done some some aspects of like really putting on guardrails and a clear focus on what it is that we are looking for and the type of partners we are looking for, in addition to, of course, the limitations of the, the system that we haven't built so far. And then we kind of add on top of it based on where the opportunities are, just in some sort of vagueness, but really clearly understanding that this is a, an opportunity worth pursuing and there is true value to be captured and true value to be created for customers in here. Um, and, and if possible, really putting behind some some numbers and analysis that allow us to understand like to which extent can that go, but still skunky, but, but kind of, you know, manage skunkiness if you want way of like, let's allow ourselves to explore wherever possible. Let's look forward to the future a little bit more. I, I think you're in a uniquely interesting place because you are, like you were saying, this intersection of two markets that have really had some big accelerating trends because of the pandemic. You got the healthcare side, pharmaceutical side, you've got, you've got the aviation side with drones. Talk about how you see things adapting when it comes to global business, when it comes to countries being able to create some momentum around getting global scale from you know someone who's a leader who has experience in, in a place where trends are accelerating. The pandemic and, and many other things that we've gone through in the last five to 10 years really showed the power that technology and the different type of tools that we have can be put to work to really create value in many different ways. And consumers are expecting many different type of experiences. You and I are questioning ourselves, like why do I still need to call or go to this office or step outside my door to pick that package or something like that. And we we are some of those who are really thinking on what, what kind of experience do we really want to give people? When it's for consumers, it's some sort of teleportation type of experience. You get what you want, when you want it, where you want it. With businesses and others, it's really helping them recreate that type uh, of experience with, with their consumers. And, and I think we are really in the world where it used to be shareholder capitalism, if you want, like maximizing profits and returns for investors. But it's really kind of expanding beyond that. We're seeing the scope into climate change and uh, ESG more broadly. But then I think it's also being centered really around the consumer where it moves away from the social networking companies really allowed us to be able to do that. Devices like iPhones and others allowed us to really change how people interact socially. I think the the fintechs that kind of have come along in the last two to five years have allowed us to see a completely different experience in terms of how we access financial services. And I think that's now moving into how we interact with the world and the industries around us, whether that's medical, whether that's uh, e-commerce and how we buy and sell things, whether that's uh, travel and, 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 and how we stay in different places of the world where we are traveling that. And I think... It's really now being centered around the consumers and they are in commanding power of the type of experiences that they want to get. Businesses really have to now build around that in in some ways and it will come at a great cost. And and lucky enough, we are in a time where there is so much investor interest and and people are really uh, facilitating entrepreneurs and innovators who are building in the space. But but I'm seeing that shift kind of long lasting and in, in so many ways very different from 
how we innovated in the past and what we try to achieve and why we innovated in the past around processes and around experiences. But now it's really around a personal experience, very, very personal for each individual. And you see that in how uh, different businesses are talking about, you know, advances like the metaverse and how in Africa we're seeing people building the, the future of fintech in some ways. So we are also positioning ourselves to be in that space, being able to transform the experience that anyone will have with whatever parcel package letter or you name it that that you receive and how we, we completely transform that experience in addition to how you interact with your fruit sellers with how you interact with your pharmacist and doctor in in a way or another so in terms of transforming the experience of consumers will we see zip line landing pads on, on houses because it won't work in denmark because we have houses like this so you're gonna have to find a way where they can actually go on on more of a, a what do you call it, diagonal roof and all that stuff right so you have to rethink that at least for the danish market joke aside here <laughs> i'd be interesting uh, interested just to quickly learn about where you see the next growth opportunities for zip line you know you talked a lot about healthcare. where do you see you guys move Moving towards, what are some of the adjacent markets that you guys are looking to tap into? I think it's it's pretty much anything that needs a logistic system, really, and and that could be agriculture, that could be e-commerce, that could be any any type of ecosystem that needs a logistic system that's instantaneous, and and that's what I mean by a customer and consumer experience. Right, that's really what we are building towards and and really looking into. I think I'm excited to see what what gets built in this space, whether by zipline or by the industry more generally, and and how that's going to look like. So I would say, watch this space, right? Five years ago, you had no idea that a drone could be flying medical products. And who knows, maybe five years, the drone would be delivering something in your room. I'm kind of very excited about what that future could look like. Yeah, it's, it's not just about taking cool aerial photographs anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, um, so, yeah. <laughs> so in this future world we're talking about, what type of skills do you think are needed by business leaders to be successful? You know, you're dealing with these accelerating technologies, you're dealing with distributed workforces. What what skills are most important? It's it's really this idea of being globally minded in nature. I think we will be addressing and, and remember the consumer, the typical consumer today is someone who lives in a city in the US or Europe. But as you said earlier, the young people of Africa are rising at a really fast pace to really represent the consumer of the future, just like how the Chinese consumer have transformed what e-commerce is like and how it's done and what's it done. And so I think that that frontier is now coming to different type of consumer who have an equal amount of power to purchase and, and to interact with the type of services and products that business leaders are putting out there. And you will have to really have an open-minded to, to kind of how the world is in its different shape and forms and, and to really build in that way. But also that means that you won't only be building for them, you will be working with people from those kind of different worlds. And so you really need to have that, that capacity to engage in, in that sense. And that's not only with different people coming from different worlds. Recently, I was listening to a podcast around the workplace with millennials and different generations and, and how that, that's a whole different game. And so my, my thinking is really more around that capacity of understanding the world in its many different shape and forms and responding to it, whether that's by building products that's leading in it in a way that really uh, is able to address all those priorities at the same time and the needs of the different communities. And, and remember, 
This also means that different people have different expectations, whether that with ESG and climate change and, and other aspects of the world. So leaders will have to really be open-minded and, and have a, a curiosity that's completely different and oriented in a different way to address and respond to all of that. You're speaking to our hearts when you talk about global-mindedness and curiosity and so forth, because obviously we've developed this new concept called an entrepreneur, where the tip of the iceberg, if you will, you know, we have, uh, you know, agile mindset in the very bottom, you know, leaders has to be agile, but then also very much a company mindset, being able to influence, build coalition from within to drive innovation, transformation within an organization. But then most certainly now that we're going into this much more distributed world and where we interact with customers from you know, across geographies, et cetera, but as well as also employees and colleagues and so forth, you need to have this cultural curiosity, this global mindedness to be able to be successful in, in today's business world. So what you just said there was completely in line with what Aaron and I, we talk about in our book. So uh, great, great, great comment there. Now, we want to move into the last and final segment. And first and foremost, obviously, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, but we have the last three questions for you, which is our hot seat. So imagine you're coming down from the elevator. We have to answer these questions very, very quickly. We have three pieces of advice that we would like to ask you to share with our audience that are listening into the Global Class Podcast. Are you ready for the hot seat quick questions format? I am ready. I'm ready. Beautiful. I'm excited to see how I do. Beautiful. Okay, we'll see. We'll test you out. First question is, what one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a career around international business? Curiosity. There you go. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? I think it's agility and, and understanding. And what one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? I would say think bigger. The world is far bigger beyond your bubble. There you go. That was great. Israel, thank you so much for, for joining us today. I think I think you, you talked about some really awesome topics that, that a lot of people need to think about. I mean, some of it is specific to some of the markets you're expanding in and, and how you mentioned how a lot of these developing markets are leapfrogging mature markets and are great places for these emerging technologies and for faster adoption. I think you said a lot of great things about the need to localize and also in particular about having that team that's there that localizes and 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 also that 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 plug we have for those global class companies that see innovation happening in local markets and translate that back to headquarters and find a way to to put that through a whole global footprint so thank you so much for your time and uh, we wish you best of luck with continuing with uh, ziplines growth thank you so much guys really appreciate the invitation and uh, I wish you all the best as well as you publish the book and get these these podcast episodes out as well. thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Israel. Thank you so much. All the best.